Have you ever met an underground rock snob who gave a hoot about hardcore punk? Not likely. Think of all the indie rock fanzines that kissed off even the best of this music as kids stuff. Well, meet Tony Retman, a New York music journalist who moves between underground rock and hardcore with total ease. Tony's taste is small c Catholic, fluid, super sensitive to the virtues of everything from obscure 1970s bad finger sound likes to the most earnest straight edge hardcore punk to the noise jazz underground stuff he covered in his late 90s fanzine 200 pound underground. The man likes what he likes. His writing's shot through with a plain talk style and self-deprecating wit that makes him a treat to read whatever he's writing about. Imagine a younger, streetwise Byron Coley from New Jersey raised on CBGB's Sunday hardcore matinees and Don Rickles. He takes something as lowly as the record review and bends it toward highly personal and truly tasteless ends. What you remember most in the Tony Retman review is that parting shot. His last lines blindside you. They resolve with a big, fat splat. They're utterly priceless, and yeah, there's toilet humor. Besides writing about music for various places, Tony's authored three books, definitive, stunningly well-researched histories of Detroit, New York, and straight-edge hardcore scenes. And the man has lately been branching out into non-music writing. World, watch out. Imagine yourself arriving at a party. On one side of the room, you've got the guys from Agnostic Front and the Cro-Mags and Madball, and they're chowing down on the shrimp ring. On the other side of the room, you've got people from the Stilt Breeze Records camp, and they're swilling all the free craft beer that they can get. Where do you go? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I guess, <laughs> I guess my uh, my history would uh, say that I'd want to bring both of them together and have them find their like you know find their common grounds, which are you know they're both freaks of nature, whether they like it or not. So I don't know. I I like. I like both sides and I like, uh, you know, I like elements of both sides. And I think that's what, uh, <laughs> makes me who I am. So I think I would, uh, I would spend ample time on either side if that's allowed with the common goal of, uh, you know, bringing, uh, someone like, uh, Tom Lax, you know, who runs Silt Breeze together with like, Vinny Stigma from Agnostic Front, so they can, you know, talk about meatball recipes or, you know, things that, <laughs> again, they would find common ground on. Absolutely. And you are probably one of the few people that I know of who feels kind of comfortable in both of those camps. Like they're both kind of your tribes. You've written books on Detroit hardcore, New York hardcore, and most recently on Straight Edge. Uh, but you also write for The Wire, who have like a very different kind of poncy like readership. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see your role as explaining and interpreting hardcore punk for like the underground noise rockers and explaining underground noisy, weird, fringy rock for hardcore kids? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, it's, it's not like a conscious goal, but I guess that is, uh, an element to what I do because, you know, I always worked in record stores as well. So I was always trying to like, you know, do that pushy record clerk thing of, you know, pushing people in a certain direction um, musically or to expand musically or whatever. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that is a, a part of it. Um, um, but, you know, I think it's all, it's all a part of like where, I don't know where the right, my writing has come together at a certain point in history 
I think in that, um, whatever, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s or whatever, there was that noise scene that sort of uh, took elements of hardcore and, and brought it you know, into their world. And I think that that element uh, maybe made magazines like The Wire a little more interested in covering things that um, you know, weren't as uh, whatever, the typical things they would cover um, as far as avant-garde music goes. Um, so I think I'm lucky in that regard that it all kind of lined up at some certain point where there was uh, an appreciation for the, you know, the kind of primitive sonic qualities of hardcore and how that paralleled with some noise stuff and also some of the, the you know, like cacophonous elements of free jazz. Um, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess in some way, whether, <laughs> whether I like it or not, uh, that it might be like the, um, my, uh, my purpose <laughs> in this, uh, underground. Let's start with hardcore. You grew up in Jersey, got into hardcore punk at a young age through your brother, Don, who I also want to get to. You did a hardcore punk scene called Common Sense in the late eighties. But before that, you did an earlier scene. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, I can. There's really not much to talk about. Uh, I started it when I was 14, and it was called I4NI, the letter I, the number four, the letter N, the letter I. I thought it was very clever. Um, <laughs> and also, I liked... Um, Corrosion of Conformity, band from North Carolina, and their first record was called Eye for an Eye. So whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, you're not gonna find there's there's a lot of issues. I did like ten issues in a two year span, but that just goes to show that I didn't have much to, much to do as a kid. Um, so yeah, there's yeah, you're not gonna find like any kind of missing part of the puzzle or anything if you find an issue like i don't have any issues i have friends who still have issues and i'll go over their house and they'll like pull one out as a joke but i don't even want to get past like the first page like i i i just again obviously it's just a little too uh close to home and sec secondly like there, there's nothing unique there like it's one of dozens and dozens of poorly photocopied hardcore zines from the mid eighties with, you know, interviews that were conducted through the mail and, you know, photos that aren't, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, photos that aren't like, you know, half toned and just slapped on a copy machine. Like, yeah, you're not going to find anything uh, outstanding or any kind of link to what I, what I have written throughout the years or anything. They're just bad record reviews, boring interviews, like, yeah, nothing. Nothing, uh, nothing that sticks out. Well, you're 14, man. You got to cut yourself a bit of slack. And even from an early age, it seemed like you had this interest in documenting hardcore. So, um, so we'll move on because it sounds like you're, you're not that keen on talking. About uh, it's not like it's not like I'm embarrassed of or anything. I honestly don't know what to talk about. <laughs> like I did 10 issues. I interviewed all the same people that a lot of people interviewed at that period of time, as far as like punk and hardcore went. Um, yeah. I wrote a lot of reviews, like after listening to a record, maybe once, if that, like 
I have no reference <laughs> to anything. So, yeah, it was just like bad imitations of other things that I uh, that I did. But I will say that um, I did do start doing like live face to face interviews, which you know, again, you know, kind of going back to what you're saying at 15, I guess that was pretty um, challenging to do. So yeah, I interviewed like uh, like corrosion conformity. Uh, actually, interviewed Steve Albini face to face. A lot wow. of things. Yeah, a lot of things that uh, yeah, I guess as a fifteen year old you don't really do. But again, um, from what I remember, it's nothing unique. You know, um, yeah, <laughs> that's about it. That works, man. Tell us a bit about Common Sense. People know a bit more about that, even though I think it was just a couple issues you did. Are you more proud of that effort? Uh, yeah, but that's probably because it was more of a, um, I don't know, it was more of its time, shall we say, in that uh, it, it did kind of come together at this time where the whole uh, kind of straight edge, hardcore renaissance was happening on the East coast with, um, you know, like youth of today and bold and gorilla biscuits. And, um, yeah, I, at first I was kind of skeptical of those bands to be quite honest, even though I, I actually liked them. It was more like I was under the influence of my older brother who was, you know, like in his late twenties by then and thought that stuff was pretty silly. So I don't know. I finally had to like, once I, went out on my own and saw those bands and experienced them in a live setting. Like I was, I was like a convert. Um, my friend from, uh, my neighborhood to McMahon, uh, was also really into this, um, new straight edge thing that was going on. And, um, I did a fanzine that I was just talking about. Eye for an eye. He did a, a zine that was more of a skate skate zine called slew. And we were both really into the whole straight edge thing. And, you know, at that time there were these, there were these fanzines that were covering th that specific genre of bands, uh, a zine called boiling point that was out of New Jersey, uh, smorgasbord, which is out of Connecticut, uh, Seattle. There was a zine called open your eyes. And, um, I don't know. It was like a cool, it was a cool little scene and those zines were very inspirational in the in the aspect of they were like very graphic oriented like they they it wasn't just you know like typewritten on a on a sheet of paper and put on a xerox machine like they were definitely like graphic design students and everything looked really good the photos were half-toned which was like a new thing that we learned about like oh like you know we can make this actually look nice and also we were both started a a class in graphic design, which also helped. Like we had like access to like uh, like letter set, rub off letters, and all this kind of stuff, um, which was like all these tools to make a zine that kind of resembled the zines that we we were into at that time, like the ones I just listed before. Um, so it just seemed like a like a no brainer. Like we were into this music, let's join in, you know. Um, so yeah, we did Common Sense, which uh, some people might think it's kind of a little late in the game, but I think the first issue came out in March of 1989, and then we did a second issue. And uh, honestly, like I think the only <laughs> thing that kept uh, 
kept the thing the the thing afloat in the kind of underground history or hardcore history is uh my partner in that zine tim mcmahon um went on to be in a lot of um popular straight edge hardcore bands mouthpiece hands tied etc mm-hmm. and um two it is you know it's it's uh, couched into that late 80s straight edge hardcore boom in america which i guess you know gives us you know whatever gets us in there as far as the history of that stuff goes um and yeah i think i think that's it is you know we were just lucky to to kind of be a part of it and that's what keeps it afloat in history as well as tim's tim's involvement and at some point in the early 90s you kind of burnt out on hardcore punk moved away decided you weren't straight edge and a few years later, you started a very different kind of scene called 200 Pound Underground, a very different focus. Can you take us through that period, Tony? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I would uh, I would say sometime in the early 90s, I just got very burnt out on, on the hardcore scene, just things kind of repeating themselves or things just kind of going in a direction that I, I was just not interested in anymore. You know, I wasn't interested in kind of being a, a part of something or, or you know, um, whatever. Be, honestly, like, I was kind of tired of being a part of some kind of community. Like, I wanted just to, like, enjoy music. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I kind of, like, backed away from that. I started hanging out with my older brother more at his at this house that he had at that time. And uh, he was just playing me a lot of records that were kind of, you know, perfect, um, whatever, like perfect for that time, like a kind of a bridge to some new, uh, whatever, musical world. Um, So, yeah, he was playing me a lot of stuff like psychedelic rock, a lot of uh, what would be termed kraut rock at that time, free jazz, you know, um, force exposure fanzine, those later issues definitely had an inspiration on finding out like what the, what the new, uh, road was, because I guess in my mind, I figured like that zine started out as a hardcore zine in the early eighties. And this is kind of where Jimmy Johnson was, was heading, you know, with, with, uh, Byron Coley in tow. So, you know, I guess I figured like they would know what would be the the, the, the next thing I would be interested in. Um, so yeah, as I started to find out more about this music, I kind of reacted to it in the only way that I, I that I knew how was like, oh, I want to like tell more people. Excuse me, tell more people about it, even though like I was just saying before, I was kind of tired of being around people. But um, I, but I don't know like. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't know how else to react to it. Like, I couldn't just be a fan. Like, I just couldn't be like, oh, that that's a good record. Do, 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 and just go about my day. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah. So, I started, I, I had an idea to do a, a fanzine about it and kind of present it in my, whatever, in my matchless <laughs> way of, uh, I don't know, of just... Um, yeah, being this guy, like, this was my road from, like, you know, hardcore to this music, and 
conveying that and also like in these reviews and maybe in some of my writings putting little like kernels in that would be you know like signs to other people that kind of came through this direction you know like to be like oh there's others like this um so yeah i started it with a, a friend of mine nick forte who was in a, a band called rorschach new jersey in the in the 90s and um he was on the same boat really like kind of getting he got out of hardcore and kind of got into like indie rockish kind of stuff and now he was more interested in like the dead sea and things like that and um he did the band beautiful skin and yeah. christmas decorations and yeah and he's done like solo electronic work and all that yeah all that kind of stuff so we were both on the same plane there as far as like wanting to you know into new stuff and wanting to kind of ever advertise our new tastes i don't know so he helped with the first issue and then i kind of to be honest thinking back i think i kind of like boxed him out to do the other ones by myself which probably was a shit shitty move um <laughs> but um whatever uh so yeah that first issue definitely like um whatever straddled that fence of like punk and, and psychedelic rock and that like we interviewed um uh brian mcmahon from the electric eels and then like eddie flowers who was in crawl space and was in like the band the gizmos who were like kind of a you know, american proto-punk band um so and like uh we interviewed Mooseheart faith which was like a psychedelic folk band that guys from the angry simones in it so yeah it did even though it wasn't a conscious effort i guess we did kind of like um whatever like we were attracted to those people that were kind of like weird proto-punk um guys who got into weird music later um but yeah i did i mean i think i'm trying to think four issues five five maybe i did like three and then i did like two in the 2000s that to be honest aren't i don't know they might be good i haven't looked at them in a while <laughs> but uh i don't look at any of this stuff in a while but you know i would say the first three were like the the good ones maybe i'm not saying like the writing was any good but as far as like really showing like this weird uh kind of like self created music universe that's like the grateful dead and um early hardcore and like mono shock and uh you know trembling strain or some weird japanese like barely there minimalist stuff to the no neck blues band like uh, yeah it was just sort of like not being presented under any uh any a certain umbrella you know it was probably the first time i did a fanzine was just like this is just what i like like you know i love the eclecticism of those early issues i mean there's there's gushy santana reviews in <laughs> the first or second issue but but yeah you're just well you're, you're just like music fan you're completely open to this but you know on the other hand i'll be perfectly uh, transparent and saying like putting like yeah the santana bootleg reviews and like those grateful dead reviews in there were like yeah i'm into this stuff now but it was also like a total fuck you to like anybody who was like oh what's ripman up to now like you know they open up his fanzine like 
looks fucking dead now. Fuck him. <laughs> so, you know, it was the equivalent of like when I worked in a record store at that time and when like, you know, a bunch of kids walked in who looked like how I looked, you know, in my teen in my teen years of like, you know, a big hooded sweatshirt and a flat top. I would immediately just put on the dead just to, you know, piss them off. It was, you know, it's just uh, just being being from New Jersey, <laughs> being reactionary. I <laughs> uh, you know I don't know. Respect. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, straight edge hardcore is is a pretty insular scene. I don't I don't keep tabs on it now, but I'm imagining late '80s, early '90s, and you suddenly open yourself up to all kinds of other music. You're no longer straight edge. You got a lot of flack for this, I'm assuming. Yeah, but just from like. Oh, wait, oh, actually, I should take that back. Um, well, kind of, sort of. It was only from, like, friends, you know, like people that I knew that I grew up with and who were still straight edge or anything. It wasn't from, like, complete strangers. But I did have uh, somebody who was, I considered a, a, a friend, and uh, still do, uh, at that time, like, write an editorial in their fanzine about me, which, in all honesty, like, was totally warranted <laughs> i was i mean i was kind of a jerk um but but i didn't know it was going to be presented publicly but that's hard like that's a total element of hardcore that i'd really love to delve into is just like you know the petty um passive aggressiveness of um, uh-huh. of, of team of like teen boys and even grown and 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 grown men because having done three books about this stuff i can say that that does not go away um but yeah so yeah i got flack from like friends and stuff but not from like uh, like total strangers or anything you know what i mean like so but and it was under like with that it was understood like yeah all right i kind of me whatever i kind of fucked up but on the other hand like i think i was finally coming to a realization uh as a kid like that everything <laughs> everything is not so much of a big deal if that makes any sense so i was just a little uh not confused but like i was just like man if if any if every if everybody could just realize that it'd probably make life a lot easier but um and and you know the other thing is uh, and again it might be me being um too close to the situation again. Like I had a lot of uh, friends that when they stopped being straight edge, it was just like, you know, full on, like, you know, in in three months time, they were doing like heroin and hard drugs. And like, I had never had an interest in any of that stuff, like ever. So I just felt like once I stopped being straight edge to like all my old friends, like they just threw me in the pool with the rest of those guys. And I was like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not a drug addict. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I just like, you know, smoking pot. Like I'm not like those guys, you know, Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think that that was another element that kind of made me a little like, um, prickly or something. And just like, Hey, like I just stopped being straight edge. That's all. Like I'm still, whatever, still have the same dumb sense of humor and everything, you know, but yeah, whatever. So yeah, there was some uh, pushback, but not as bad as some other friends of mine um, who, uh, <laughs> who got some uh, retaliation, shall we say. What do you mention about wishing that people who are in hardcore could kind of get 
some distance from it and see that this stuff is just not that big a deal. I remember interviewing Otto Bui, who did yeah. Uh, yeah. In the late 90s, interviewed him. He did a zine called Sold Out yeah, I know. Uh, here yeah. in Ontario. And he talked like he's got the same kind of narrative and journey himself. Uh, he, he was putting on shows, doing a zine, um, recording in a band, and then went overseas to do some volunteer work one summer. And then just saw that um, this was in like war-torn Eastern Europe, um, that people there just weren't like life wasn't opposed. Like people weren't trying to be hard. Like they just dealt with gritty stuff every day. And it just kind of put things in perspective and said, I'm just this suburban kid with uh, really like nothing to complain about. I'm just looking for a fight. And that that was kind of his aha moment. And uh. he yeah, no, that, that that makes sense. I can't say, I think if I had any aha moments, it was just sort of like sitting around late, like late at night with like, you know, uh, like, you know, I was, whatever, I was kind of from doing a fanzine and being friends with Tim and Tim McMahon and kind of like, you know, roading for lack of a better word with mouthpiece. Um, you know, you'd be, hanging out late at night with like a band like staying at somebody's house and it was just like the things that they had that that were fun to like people who weren't doing drugs <laughs> um or whatever it was just like oh my god like i'd rather go and do drugs like it was just so boring and i i was just tired of talking about hardcore all the time and you know, uh, I think that was it. It was just like I hit a wall, you know, I just hit the wall. And I was like, I, I got to do something else here. You know, I mean, if I were smart, I would have went to college. <laughs> but, but alas, I didn't. Um, so yeah, I think that would be it is just like kind of realizing like my, like all my friends wanted to stay in this. And I was kind of, you know, I wanted to move, move on. As you moved out of hardcore and a few years later, start looking back on it with a bit of like critical distance and musical ears do you find yourself appreciating things that you maybe didn't appreciate in the beginning? Like you find like, Oh, there's something really charming and poignant about these kind of corny SoCal bands, like chorus of chorus of disapproval or instead. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I can see the charm in that now more than I did then for sure. Because like, you know, you bring up that instead, like instead. And like, I was a big fan and then they put out that they put out their final record, just called what we what we believe i think mm -hmm. and um came out i want to say in the fall of 1990 or so maybe and um i remember getting it and just being like like being so bored it's just every song sounded the same and i i think i gave it away that day to a friend of mine to tim probably because he didn't buy it yet and i was like here take it and um <laughs> Now I like, you know, when I started writing the, the straight edge book, I started going back and listening to, to stuff. And I was like, holy shit, this record's great. Like, because it is, it just, everything I disliked about it then, I love about it now. You know, it checks all the boxes of like good, mo like, you know, good mosh parts, fast, like the lyrics are, are, are a little corny. Like, you know, it's like a perfect time capsule, especially that record. I think that record is like, yeah, the time capsule, maybe like whatever the, the final record that came out that was like a straight edge record that had that that formula to it after that i guess it got more moshy or whatever but um yeah i definitely 
appreciate the trappings more in the way of like, you know, another there, even back then when I was fully into that stuff, there were a lot of records that I just thought were like youth of today ripoffs that I was like, meh, not that great that now I, I really do love because of that, because they're just perfect, you know, just like perfect time capsules of, uh, of a, of a, of a time, <laughs> of, a, of a, you know, a moment in the, in the underground of, you know, hardcore. Yeah. Guyless SoCal, you know, early 20 somethings dropping around and, uh, with, with corny lyrics and in track pants, like there's, yeah, I, I, I get that more now than I did, uh, 20 years ago for sure. But having said that chain of strength never got old. I want that on record. <laughs> You heard it here, people. Yes. So, Tony, the first time I ever heard your name um, or read your name was in the 90s in this hardcore punk photo scene called Intermission. Oh, okay. Done by Justine Dimitrique. Yeah. And and I can't find it. I think it's in my parents' basement. But she said something along the lines of, one day, someone like Tony Rettman is going to write the definitive history of this music. What qualities do you think you have or, or had? Uh, that made people regard you as kind of the Alan Lomax of hardcore punk music. Oof, jeez. Um, I guess just because I experienced, <clears throat> I experienced it um, in real time as as much as I could. You know, like I went and um, you know I saw Black Flag when I was eleven years old, um, which I don't I don't think a lot of people can have that on their resume. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I did not get to witness like the, you know, this stuff in there in its embryonic form in like the early, early eighties. Um, but from, you know, the summer of 1984 till, you know, sometime in the nineties, I, you know, lived it and experienced it and saw the ebb and flow of, you know, where it went during its, you know most uh, fervent time, which I would say is, you know, right before like this, the grunge blowout of the 90s, you know, when everything just, you know, either went, it either went um, five degrees underground, you know, five to 10 degrees further underground, or, you know, blew up, you know, into the mainstream, you know what I mean? So, um so I guess that's it is just that I've had some distance from it and I can observe it from, you know, observe this, you know, what would many would consider the most important time of it. Um, and, you know, having the distance, witnessing it, taking it all back down to the basement and putting it in some kind of sequential order and not, you know, I think the thing is, like, I'm very adamant not to, like, interject too much of myself into those books, um, but others say that they, they would appreciate that more. I am I just look at it as sort of, like, whatever, transmitting, um, you know, whatever these people say out into the world in some kind of, you know, sequential manner. That's just my, that's my, uh, that's my job. But, um, yeah, I guess, you know, for, for her, for her to say something like that, it would be because, because of it, because of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I appreciate the fact that your books, your three books that you've done are very, 
they're interview heavy. Like you've obviously like you're shaping this, like something of a narrative there. Like you can't help but do that. Um, like you're editing the material and, and arranging it in some way, but as much as possible, you're, you're keeping out of it and just letting the people who were there and active tell their story. Yep. That's yep. That's what I do. <laughs> Does it bother you that hardcore doesn't get much respect? Do you wish like more non-hardcore people and, and rock critics would get what's appealing about instead or outburst or unity? No, no, I don't know. Like, no, I mean, I, again, like what I, what I was saying before, like, when I would sort of drop these little like references to hardcore and stuff into reviews of like whatever fucking no neck blues band or like mighty baby or something, it was just to be like, Hey, is there anybody, is there anybody else like this? Eh?" Like, um, that was about it. It wasn't to like bridge any kind of gap. Um, and I'd rather, I don't know, like I, I, I'd rather meet someone who's, who's gone through that avenue of hardcore or punk or something and, and come upon experimental music. Um, then somebody who's just like checking off a box because they think like, I have to have like a, a better understanding of this. If I'm going to like get a staff position at pitchfork or something, you know, or I'm going to be like the punk hardcore loud music editor for fill in the blank, you know, media outlet um you know i have no interest in being around people like that um so i probably wouldn't do well (laughs) with someone who approached me in such a manner um so yeah i i don't i don't think that's my job like i don't look at that as my job i don't see it as my job i don't want it to be my job um you know, there's a reason why why we get excited when we meet somebody who knows a certain band or movie or book or something we read, and it's just because, like, whatever, as, as corny as it might sound, it's because you found your tribe or whatever. You found the, the, the one person that you'll find a connection with. So what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of, uh, of turning people onto this stuff if it's just for them to like check off a box and be like, I think I understand that now. Great. Like what's vaporwave up to this week? You know, like I just, I, I don't have an interest in that. Yeah. It, it seems like those references that you drop that are sort of shocking to people be like, what, what did he's, he's reviewing this, but mentioning this, like, these are obviously like coming from a deep place in you that you couldn't get rid of if you wanted to like this. is Yeah. Out. I tried. Um, I tried. It didn't. It didn't. Didn't take. I tried to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. There must be therapy for something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not effective. Yeah. Apparently. I've liked some of your your recent Substack articles. They're they're like deeply personal. You're talking about how lyrics from '80s hardcore bands like Unity speak to you. So my question is, like, do you still feel like a misfit? Do you still feel like this? out of step hardcore kid who's who's an adult figuring out how to be an adult. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I mean <laughs> it's funny because you know we're we we're just talking before about like what my uh like what my angle is or something or like you know am I trying to make hardcore 
people like experimental music or vice versa. And it's just like, my shtick is that. <laughs> it's what you just described. Like, it's just like this fucking man child who can't like, whatever, maneuver the real world still, like, as he, you know, is pushing 50. Like, you know, I thought, you know, at the time of hearing, you know, Unity or Youth of Today or Beyond or all these bands who had these like super inspiring lyrics on like, where do you, where do I go from here? You know, I didn't really go. I was just happy to be on that hamster wheel, <laughs> you know, like, where do I, yeah, where do I go from here? Like it was a, you know, a distraction that I just, you know, kept on my whole life, I think. Um, so yeah, um, I am totally that. I'm just a guy who's like lost and trying, still trying to, you know, find, find meeting and, you know, what I've wasted my whole life on, <laughs> um, you know, and having said that, you know, for every one of those songs of praise things I wrote about a hardcore song, I also wrote about like John Bulk, like John Buck Wilkins or like Kevin Ayers or something, you know, like it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's all, <laughs> It's all a deep. It's all a deep tapestry, you know. It's a. It's all one and the same. It's all like trying to find these clues and like. I don't know. I better find that clue pretty fucking fast, you know. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I would say that. Uh, that is a that is a fair assessment, and I still haven't really. It's not a shtick. I mean, it, like it, it might be kind of a shtick, but it's not a shtick. Like I I, I don't. I, I honestly have not figured this out yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, strap in. It's it's going to be going on still, like for a while. <laughs> well, I I think I appreciate that and love that about your writing. There's there's definitely like a a non careerist kind of bent to yeah. what you do. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I which is not the slag that it's you know like that's that's a good thing, man. That's, that's a good thing. I, I'm sure you might feel frustrated by that, but, but as a reader, I, there's something refreshing about that. And I, I like the fact that you're searching, you're not searching for, like, we know the established kind of canonical bands in rock, you know, Black Sabbath, Birds, the Stooges, Black Flag, all, all this stuff. You're not looking for the next one of those. You're just, uh, you're just exploring everything out there in music and you're finding interesting things even if these things are not masterpieces you're you're listening to this kevin Ayers album and, and finding some cool things to bring out about it you're you know you've i've heard you play you know jimmy webb and elton john songs um you're you're kind of taking it all in and, and making these connections yeah and i think that's another thing that is um that's exciting about constantly discovering music is that you know, especially when you're grow, growing up um, into punk and hardcore, it's like you'll like you know you're always like I'll never listen to fill in the blank, I'll never listen to that, and then like a few years go in and you're like okay well I'll only listen to the first three records, and then like you know by you know five years later you're like you know crying to landslide or something you know, um, so um, yeah I think it, like discovering that. Oh, you know what? Like, there's a couple, there's some good Elton John songs, you know? Oh, shit. I could have, and now I'm like, I couldn't have never lived my life without, you know, hearing Anne Marina or something, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so, 
yeah, I, I think that's one thing that kind of keeps uh, keeps me going or something is like the, this constant discovery. And as much as people want to like poo-poo it or whatever, like, um, you know, music streaming services have definitely um, enhanced my musical knowledge and like the things that I've found out about, whether, you know, it's bad or good this week, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, uh, definitely discovering, um, yeah, like artists that you thought you knew your whole your whole life, like those little nuggets where you're like, oh shit, this is a cool song. Or even like listening to all the, like the deep cuts, you know, for lack of a better term. And then, you know, driving around one day and just hearing like one of the hits and being like, it clicks like, oh, yeah, I understand why this, <laughs> why uh, this took the world by storm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, um, that's definitely one thing that I think keeps a lot of people going is just this constant discovery and finding things in the places that you didn't think you would discover them. So you're a freelance writer, Tony. How does that work? It works very poorly. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. You know, having my anti-careerist bent is not really too helpful when pitching things. <laughs> Um, luckily, you know, the wire is, is very open to, uh, pitches and I'm very grateful for that. They're very easy to deal with. Um, so with them, I, I usually, you know, pitch regularly. Sometimes, you know, they take it, sometimes they don't. Um, but yeah, I, I go by, I, I go about it in a really, um, whatever the simpleton way of like, Oh, Blankety Blank has a new record coming out. I like Blankety Blank. Let's see if Blankety Blank wants me to write about Blankety Blank. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but, you know, there are steady uh, outlets that, that um, ask me to do stuff like The Wire uh, magazine in, in, in England that's more, uh, it's like a glossy hardcore magazine called down for life um you know I, this this year it's been mostly like band camp and some other things but um yeah it's 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 pretty simple i don't really like i'm not like real <laughs> freelancers who sit there and like you know uh see what's gonna be out in the next two to three months and you know gauge everything and figure out you know how much money they're going to make up until getting to that thing. I'm, I'm still so, uh, I'm still such a rube and, and shocked that anybody will pay me for anything that I'm just, that, that, that in itself is enough. <laughs> as sad as that might sound. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's, that's how it goes. Very rarely does anybody come to me with like an idea, like, Hey, I'd like you to do that. And, and usually it's something that's fitting, you know, um, when the New York, when my second book came out, the New York Harker book, I got a lot of, uh, attention from like major outlets asking me like it's something like, Hey, we'd love to have you write for us. And I was like, Oh, cool. Well, this is what I'd want to write about. And they'd be like, no, uh, you know, and they'd want me to write about like system up and down or something. I was like, uh, like I didn't get it. And I was like, but I don't like them and I'm not probably going to write, I'm not going to write anything neutral 
about them. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, it was something where I was like, oh, so this is how this works? Ooh, like, I don't know if I like this. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I did, uh, you know, whatever. I did a lot of stuff at that time for, like, Noisy and, um, you know, some other places. So it worked out in some regard. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, I just kind of, like, stumble around, find things I like, and see if anybody will be interested in paying me to write them. That's basically it. Your reviews are hilarious. They uh, uh. they make for good reading. I I will read them even if I'm not necessarily going to check out the band. How important is humor in your writing, and do you see value in music writing just for its own sake? Uh, yeah. Uh, do I find the humor in it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I hope other people do because, like, my sense of humor is just a little uh, can be a little abrasive sometimes. But uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, because, you know, the one thing that I always liked about uh, Touch and Go fanzine that was, you know, an early 80s hardcore fanzine from the Midwest, uh, you know, one of the editors, Tesco V, always, I mean, it might be, it's somewhere. I don't know. I can't pinpoint the quote. Um, it might have been in an interview he did with me, but, it, you know, he said, like, the intention of record reviews and Touch and Go was, like, to you know, entertain first, inform second. And uh, mm-hmm. I always followed that rule. <laughs> once once someone like like laid, laid it out, you know, like that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's really important. Um, so, I yeah, I think record reviews in themselves are, um, yeah, are, are, can be entertaining without even mentioning the record. You know, I mean, look at some of the, you know, like Richard Meltzer, or like Lester Benz, or like Nick Tosh's reviews that are like that. Those are some of my favorite, favorite record reviews, you know, of just um, not even mentioning the records or just, you know, just writing something totally inane. Um, you know, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, and it makes me more interested in uh, both the writing and the music that they didn't write about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I would say that record reviews don't if i'm if i'm not getting paid to write a record review it doesn't need to be informative <laughs> that's the way i look at it if i'm doing it on a sub on like my sub stack or something yeah i'm just i'm just fucking around i'm just having fun and, and kind of giving people what i guess they, they they want from me you know i'm not going to like hand in uh you know a review to like the wire that's just like you know some total you know, piss, piss take, you know, I mean, I do try to throw in humor every <clears throat> once in a while when I do write stuff for the wire, but you know, I'm not, not going to, um, do it to the lengths that I would if I were doing it, um, on my sub stack or something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I really do think like record reviews can stand on them, themselves as like a piece of just kind of like, you know, ludicrous prose or something literature. I don't know, you know, um, yeah, and definitely that, for me, the, like I was saying before, that inspiration comes from, like, firstly, from Touch and Go fanzine, and then, like, most of my life, like, then I picked up on where they got it from, you know? And then I then I read, like, Lester Bangs or, like, Richard Meltzer reviews that were just, like, ridiculous. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I get it now. Yeah, nothing useful about the music itself, just... Yeah. The, the review is the experience itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
And who are, are there any critics you admire today who inspire you? Uh, hmm. Let me, let me think there. There has to be. <laughs> I'm not like, and I'm not trying to be like a jerk. I'm really, I really am trying to think. Um, <sighs> yeah, I don't know. You know what? The thing is, is like, I don't, I don't read. I know this is again, like not going to win me any fans or editors sending me emails to pitch to them, but like, I don't really read a lot of music, like journalism. Like I don't, it's funny because like my brother, um, you know, he works at a record store and he'll talk to me about stuff on Pitchfork. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's like, he's like, well, I don't, he's like, it's not like I like this stuff. You know, I got to be aware of it to like, you know, know what to, to order the, the record store he works at and stuff. And, I, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I, I should probably do that to see like, <laughs> you know, and I was just like, what the fuck? Like if I, you know, if I wasn't thinking like that, this whole time, then I'm never going to program myself to do that probably, you know? Um, so yeah, jeez, Yeah. I don't really like, like they all write about the same stuff and you know, there's nothing. Yeah. I mean the wire. Okay. Yeah. There's stuff in the wire that I like, you know, like I like the writing in there and, uh, I like, like, um, Joe standard, I think, I like his style. He's he, again, he's a guy who like doesn't he's not afraid to like throw a little humor in there. Um whew, I'm sure once we're done, I'll think of somebody and be like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Um but yeah, I don't know. The wire always has like, you know, thoughtful writing. Um but I don't really like see anybody that really like does anything that is makes me makes me more interested in them or the music they're writing about mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that sounds harsh but whatever no, man. Sure. I like you know like whatever what what are they gonna do to me now <laughs> <laughs> what are they gonna what are they gonna do to me now you know um You're a trouble, man yeah but yeah that's uh that's about it you know like nobody I think we're all you know so many outlets do not want anybody to throw in anything like personal to their writing you know it's just like this reporting for lack of a better word i guess so that just really strips a lot of this stuff of any of the the the, the charm that attracted me to the writers that i liked so one one cool thing i think and i'm sure you're you're proud of this stuff too you've written a couple longer historical pieces for this narratively that have absolutely nothing to do with music yeah. right? they focus on like political subversives I've never heard about from the late 60s. They're really informative and well told. Can you tell us how those came about? Um, yeah, sure. Um, huh. Well, I guess as a... Let me go back. I'm trying to, I'm like, <laughs> no one ever asked me about this stuff. <laughs> really, you have to think about like where it all stems from. Um, you know, I... I guess in high school, somehow I found out about like Black Panthers and I thought that was really interesting. Kind of what little I could learn about them in like the late 80s from like a library I did. Um, and then that like at that point you would hear little tiny things about like other things that happened in America that were like that, like um, whatever, like Weather Underground and like the SLA kidnapping Patty Hearst was like 
when I was really little. I don't remember much of that. All I remember is a made-for-TV movie about it. That kind of scared me. Um, but I was always kind of interested in that stuff. Knew little bits and pieces about it as time went on. I wouldn't say I was like a historian of it or anything. Um, and then uh, I think I went to 2017, 2018 maybe. Um, CNN did like a thing about the Piety Hearst kidnapping that uh, paralleled with uh, Jeffrey Tubin's book about her that came out around that same time, American Heiress. And um, it sucked. <laughs> it was just like there were moments... What? Yeah, that sucks? No. Yeah. And I mean, Jeffrey Tubin, he seems to be on the up and up. <laughs> so, yeah. Things are looking really good for him. Yeah, he seems like a real genuine guy. Real, you yeah. know, not a CNN shill <laughs> whatsoever. But anyway... Um, the offers. I don't know if that was a pun. But... Oh, hey. Well, you know, he took his career in his own hands there. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. Um, yeah, it was just, there were some moments that were interesting, but I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, they just, you know, they would just go over these huge swaths of information that were really important just to be like, just so he could kind of like craft his narrative of what he thought happened. And, um, I was just like, Jesus Christ, like, this is horrible. This is like, you know, this is, uh, my thing was like, we're in the middle of something in 2017, 2018, when this happened, like, we're in the middle of something that's not that dissimilar from what was going on then, you know, like, maybe instead of just like, telling some crazy story, like, maybe go into the in depth of like, why these people did these things as ridiculous as they were, like, to maybe show it as some kind of like lesson, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, or something. Um, so I guess from that, I started like reread uh, books that I reread, like reread books that I read in like high school and uh, in my early twenties. And then I just started to delve deeper, like, uh, oh, like I never read this book, I never read this book. And I just started like building in the same way that like, whatever, you know, in music, when I found out about one band from a certain town, I just went through the whole Rolodex, you know, and like, oh, well, then there was this band and this band and this band, and then there was this band over here in this other state, and like, I just started to piece together this history um, and like kind of pick out the stories out of it that I found to be the most like intriguing. And uh, the Sam, the story of Sam Melville, um, who was this guy who uh, planted a bunch of uh, bombs around New York in 1969. The 50th anniversary of his uh, actions were, was happening, and I you know, wanted to write about it, so I pitched the article to uh, this website called Narratively. Um, they accepted it, and um, yeah, from there I've been writing things for them. Like last month, uh, last month or late September, they ran this huge... Um, piece I wrote about the Vencerremos, who were this group in Palo Alto, California, who, um, like, whatever, were, like, a, a radical, like, leftist group in, uh, you know, the college town of Palo Alto, who you know, built up a, uh, built up, you know, arms, and uh, got themselves into horrible trouble, and are, are considered to, by some as a precursor to the Sibanese Liberation Army. 
So writing that really like that was a huge chunk of this um, lockdown, pandemic lockdown. Like that took up, you know, the first like four months of it, just writing that and and you know transcribing and et cetera, et cetera, interviews. And uh, it was great. It was very uh, fulfilling. Uh, that article to me is like one of the if probably the best thing I've ever written. And I would like to continue in that path. I've like put together a book proposal about those stories and uh, nobody wants it. <laughs> so again, like I'm, I'm in the same place. I'm all, I always am. I'm just like interested in something that like has no mainstream appeal unless you like paint it a certain way, you know, unless you paint them like the Manson family or paint them like, you know, in, the, in this day and age, it's almost like you could probably pitch the book and, and have it be like, make them look the heroes in some way like you would have to you I, I think if I were to get that book um into like you know a mainstream um press I would either have to lean it really far to the left or re really far to the right you know like the right condemning them the left praising them I couldn't probably present that as like just an exact objective like story you know so as much as I would love to do it um you know I don't think it'll happen, um, but I really do enjoy doing the research on that stuff and interviewing those people and, you know, finding out the little nooks and crannies of the things that I read about in books, um, you know, kind of delving into those further, you know, just showing that I'm using kind of these skills that I learned from music journalism in a new, new way. Yeah, that's amazing. I hope I hope you get somebody to take you up on your book idea. And it sounds like you hope to do more stuff along these lines. Ah, uh, yeah, I would love. I mean, I also, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to give away all my secrets because I know everybody's listening. But uh, you know, I would love to. You know, I, if anything, I would like to find like, uh, like a media outlet that would let me do like a monthly column that you know does a deep dive on every on these all these groups. Um, but again. That'd be uh, be kind of hard, you know. I have pitched it around, and they're just like, Meh. like people aren't interested. So I don't know. I don't know if I just have to keep knocking on doors until I find somebody, or you know, do it myself or, or what. But um, yeah, I hope so too. I would really love to uh, delve further into researching some of these groups. Yeah, I hope you persevere, man. Thank you. <laughs> Any uh, any upcoming projects or anything that you want to plug, Tony? Mm, I have no upcoming. Oh well, okay. Actually, I do. Uh, <laughs> probably in the next month or so, um, Radio Rahim, which is a record label, uh, it's run out of both Brooklyn and Boston. I help uh, both of the guys who do that with uh, some liner notes and and other things here here and there. Um, we're going to be putting out a uh, book of Midwestern hardcore flyer art from the early 80s. Uh, that should hopefully be out in the next, or like at least pre-orders will go up in the next month or so. Um, and that was, you know, it was fun to put together. And, you know, I just took a bunch of my flyers and they put theirs together and you know, kind of put together this, this book. Um, so that'll be coming out, like I said, in the next month or so. And you can order all three of my books directly from me. I'll sign them. 
uh, from sandpaperlullaby.bigcartel.com. And I also have um, T-shirts that I'm selling that were sort of uh, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of my first book coming out. Why be something that you're not? Detroit Hardcore. And, you know, they're shirts with like a flyer from a Detroit Hardcore show on them. They're, they're up on the Big Cartel page too. Um, so if you want to order any of that stuff, please feel free because um, as you've heard from this interview, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting, uh, I'm not getting on anybody's uh, uh, good list anytime soon, I guess. You know? No, man, that all changes starting right now, right here. Yeah. Thank God. All right, good. <laughs> now, now I can lease that Audi. Thank God. All right. Tony, before I let you go, are you up for a quick lightning round? Just a few rapid fire questions. Of course. Of course. Rorschach or born against? Rorschach. Good choice. Thank you. Swizz or Dag Nasty? Oh, Swizz. Yeah. The fix or poison idea? Mmm. I would go with poison idea just because there's more more catalog. Which hardcore punk band logo would you get tattooed? And it cannot be the Black Flag bars. Mm. Mm. Let me think here. Uh, uh, mm. I guess if I like, if I had to, I would get like the uh, the minor threat black sheep. I know that. Yeah, I know it's kind of cliche, but I can't. You know, you think about other hardcore bands logos and you're like uh i don't you know like what if whatever like what if i <laughs> what if at like 18 i got like some huge straight edge tattoo that would have been like that would have been bad <laughs> most underrated sst band uh the stains okay definitely i would say probably did universal congress up report record for sst I think so, but you know what? I'll be honest. Like I, I couldn't identify one of their their tracks. I don't think I can now, but yeah, I would say. But like, I still have. Having said that, like, I still own the Stains record. Like any Universal Congress records I had probably got sold to just be like, I, I can't keep carrying this shit around. You know, <laughs> um, the Stains record is like I'll always keep because it's not on any streaming services. It's probably never going to be reissued, maybe, hopefully. And I think it's just such an important um, important record of LA punk, hardcore. Like, it's, it, And on the base level, it's just such a fucking good record. Um, but yeah, I would say that's the most underrated record. Like in the punk stuff, that, and I would say that Overkill. Yeah. Um, seven Inch, and the Overkill album is really good. But there's so many underrated. I mean, yeah, now you just, yeah. Now I'm just thinking of like the Tom Tricoli's dog record, I think is good. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of records on there that are underrated, I think. But I would, this, this thing is the one that I would, I would, I would jam. Good choice, man. Favorite Canadian band? Ooh. Ah, uh, ba like like anything like anything all time can be you know you, wow. can, you can say rock you can say the band you can say uh, oh so you, do you consider the band a Canadian band I I don't know I don't oh 
I thought you were gonna yeah. like tell me something, like, like give me your philosophy. Like, yeah, they are. Um, I have no philosophy uh, on that. Oh, um, well, off the top of my head, the first band I think of is Youth, Youth, Youth. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Because I that twelve inch, yeah, that that twelve inch is amazing. Um, it's so, um, you know, it's it's one of those records that even as I got older, like there was a lot of hardcore that even though like I really liked like, the straight edge stuff. There was some stuff as I got older, like I would listen to it and some stuff was just so earnest that I'd like, like it would just, you know, make my butt, my butt clench. You know, like it was just like, it's like, oh, dude, oof. But um, that record is extremely um, like hard on its sleeve, like earnest, and I still love it. Thanks to Tony for taking the time to chat with us. You can keep up with him by subscribing to his Substack newsletter. It's called Sandpaper Lullaby, and the URL is retman.substack.com. And if you have even a morsel of interest in the history of American hardcore punk, you do well to pick up Tony's three books. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please leave a review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Merry Christmas, and see you in two weeks.